Welcome to Howden's podcast, Fortune Favors the Brave. We all take risks in our everyday life and business is no different. In this podcast, we're speaking to the experts about a topical challenge or issue and what business leaders can do to overcome it. Welcome to Howden's podcast series, Fortune Favors the Brave. This is the second episode in a podcast series we're producing in relation to the Building Safety Act. I'm joined again today by Ian Quayle, who's well known in the conveyancing world and very well informed when it comes to issues relating to the Building Safety Act. In the first episode of this series, we focused on the steps solicitors and conveyancers should take when they're first instructed, the vexed issue of height uh, and the use of disclaimers. In this episode, we're going to be focusing on the EWS1 form, landlord certificates and leaseholder deed of certificates. So Ian, welcome back to you today. Hi Jenny. So first of all, if I can start by giving you a scenario. Yeah. So let's assume I'm acting for purchases on a leasehold flat in a 10-storey building and I've been given an EWS1 form. It's been signed off as being compliant, A1, no issues at all. But I'm worried because I'm not really sure about this because I'm also involved in a transaction on a very similar development with what seems to me to be the same cladding and that's failed the EWS1 and is going through a recladding process. So what should I do in this situation? Should I be um, warning my purchaser client? What are my obligations to the lender? Yeah, Jenny, really interesting question. What I would do in this situation is, first of all, as we mentioned in the first podcast, just look at my retainer and hopefully I'm explaining to the client that I can't give advice relating to fire safety. And as far as the EWS1 is concerned that's been provided for this property, I'm unable to confirm or verify its accuracy. So that would be the first point to make. The second point to make is if I am aware of a similar issue, in a similar building or perhaps another transaction in the same building and there is something that I'm aware of that would potentially be materially adverse to the interests of the client that I'm currently acting for, I think there's plenty of case law to say I'm under a duty to tell the client of what I'm aware of. But again, I think the client has to understand I'm not a fire safety expert. So in that situation, if my client has instructed a surveyor or valuer to undertake a survey or valuation of the property, I might make the EWS1 available to the surveyor or valuer to ask him or her to comment on it. I might also disclose to the surveyor or valuer what I'm aware of, and I might recommend to the client that it may be appropriate to get expert advice from a fire safety specialist or a building surveyor about the potential problems relating to the cladding issue that you have identified. So I think we'd have to do that, and that would be the approach that I would take. Okay. So say I make those recommendations mm. to um, my purchasers, but yeah. in this case, let's assume they're cash buyers, yeah. and they think I'm making a fuss about nothing, mm -hmm. they're in love with this property, yeah. they really want to uh, go ahead, they're not going to do any of this. Yes. What should I do? In a situation such as that, where you've got a cash buyer, you've got to follow your client's instructions. But again, I would warn the client about the, the awareness that you have concerning the issue, 
I would warn the client that as far as the EWS is EWS one is concerned, there may be information in that that is incorrect that the client is relying upon. And again, if the client wants to proceed on the basis that they've taken advice, but they're not willing to proceed with regard to the advice that I've given, then I would want the client again to probably sign a disclaimer to confirm that I'm not liable if there is an issue relating to the EWS-1 or the information that I've transmitted to the client about the other EWS-1 and proceed on that basis. I think that's the only thing that you can do. I mean, it's just it's just as if you had, say, an environmental search and report that revealed the land on a freehold purchase was contaminated and the client just says, hey, I'm happy to proceed. In a lot of respects, if a client wants to do that, the client is proceeding on their own risk as long as they're aware of that risk. Absolutely. And... <clears throat> I think you've highlighted a really important issue mm. with my um, hat on as um, a person involved with professional indemnity insurance. It's really important to have the audit trail, isn't it, yeah. and make sure that you know you have all of this very carefully uh, yes. recorded. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Okay. So the EWS1 form, um, mm. do they have a shelf life? Do they expire? No, they don't. Um, but again, if this was a higher risk building, the owner of the building or the landlord or uh, anyone else that was responsible for r repair and maintenance of common parts would have an obligation to assess risk including fire risk. So if there was an EWS-1, but there were issues relating to fire safety, then the assessments that the owner of the building should be performing would reveal that problem. And those issues would have to be disclosed to leaseholders. So the seller should have information. Or once we've bought the property, then the buyer should be provided with that information. So I'm not too worried about EWS-1s. People get hung up about it. And I keep saying to practitioners, it's not a fire certificate. In essence, it's a statement that potentially could lead you or require the client to undertake further investigation. But as far as an EWS-1 is concerned, if it reveals fire safety issues, then they would be potentially defects for a relevant building or would be building safety risks for a higher risk building that the landlord would have to attend to. Okay, right. So talking about the, the landlord... Mm. Just want to talk to you about the landlord certificate. Right. Now, what happens if the landlord simply doesn't respond or provide the certificate? Can we go ahead without it? We can, Jenny. And I smile when you mention the question because a lot of landlords aren't producing landlord certificates. A, because they don't know they have to or they don't think they don't have to or because they do have to but it's going to be too complex a task to produce a certificate and a costly exercise, or because they've got commercially sensitive information that the landlord certificate should contain that they don't want to disclose. So I'm encountering lots of situations currently where landlords should be producing landlord certificates and aren't. And I'm also coming across lots of conveyances that are screaming at landlords to produce a landlord certificate. And what I say to practitioners is this, that if we've got a relevant building five stories or 11 meters in height or more and a landlord should be producing a landlord certificate because a leaseholder's requested it or because a leaseholder's notified the landlord of their intention to sell a landlord has four weeks to produce it if a landlord doesn't produce the certificate within a four-week period then the landlord is deemed to comply with the 
condition in Schedule 8 that means the landlord cannot transmit the cost of remediation work for relevant defects into service charge. The landlord, if he meets the contribution condition, has to pay for remediation costs for relevant defects. If he doesn't produce a landlord certificate in time, he's deemed to meet the contribution condition, meaning that the leaseholder, the seller, and a subsequent buyer is actually in a better position than he would have been if a landlord had produced the certificate. There's been some recent case law on this, Jenny. You can't compel a landlord to produce a landlord certificate. There isn't a sanction for the landlord that fails to produce a landlord certificate in time, the landlord is penalised because the landlord can't recover remediation costs for relevant defects against qualifying leaseholders. Okay, that's that's really helpful. So what about a scenario where the landlord does produce a certificate? Yeah. And I understand that some of these can be quite lengthy and quite complex. How far do I have to go in terms of advising my client about this? <laughs> I saw a landlord certificate just recently, Jenny, that was 90 pages in length. Oh, good Lord. That contained a wealth of accountancy information that was heavy accountancy information. My view was that no conveyancer could give any advice as to whatever that accountancy information was revealing. I looked at it and thought, you need a forensic accountant to have a look at this. The second aspect of the landlord certificate I was looking at concerned construction information, quite heavyweight construction information relating to work, renovation work that had been done, remediation work that had been done. And again, as a conveyancer, I'd look at that and say that's way, way beyond my ability to give any advice on. So I think with a landlord certificate, you say to client and you say to lender, all I can tell you is that I've received a landlord certificate. All I can tell you is that I received that certificate within the time frame that the Act prescribes, but I cannot advise you as to the content of the certificate or its accuracy, nor can I verify the content. And that would go to the lay client, Jenny, and to any lender. Right. What about the leaseholder deed of certificate? Right, okay, then? yeah. Now, do I need to take my clients through the content of the leaseholder deed of certificate and advise them, you know, what it all means? Yeah. If I can take that question, Jenny, and split it into two. If I'm acting for a seller, then I would deal with the completion of a leaseholder deed of certificate if my seller is required to complete it. In the same way, I would deal with the TA form. So I'd be saying to my client, this is an important document that you must complete from your own knowledge. My task is simply to check that the document has been properly executed and that there's nothing on my file that's inconsistent with what you are saying. But it's your certificate that you are completing. I'm particularly worried about the seller who's giving information about the status, their status, as of the 14th of February 2022. So the seller is in the leaseholder deed of certificate confirming that this was their only flat or apartment and it was their residence and they're either and they're either com confirming that they didn't own any other flat or apartment or they owned this flat and apartment and no more than two more now i as a conveyancer can't confirm or verify that information the seller should produce evidence in support of what they're saying but again that documentation could be forged it could be false or whatever so the client seller produces all of that information i simply check has the document been executed as a deed? Is the information in it consistent with any information that I've held on my file? I warn my seller client, if you lie in that form, if you are mistaken in that form, 
genuine or otherwise, you are vulnerable to a claim for misrepresentation that could be brought by the buyer or subsequent owners. I describe a leaseholder deed of certificate, Jenny, as a golden ticket. If the certificate is valid and properly completed, and if that reveals I have a qualifying lease, that generates benefit for future leaseholders because of what we've said in the past about Schedule 8. So from a seller's perspective, in short, deal with the leaseholder deed of certificate and your clients completing the certificate in the same way you deal with the TA form. If the seller already has an existing leaseholder deed of certificate, then again, I'm not going to give any advice on it. I'm just going to tell the client it's important that the information on that form is accurate because it's going to be relied upon by subsequent owners. If I'm acting for a buyer, turn things on its head. Again, I'm going to say this is an important document. I cannot verify the information contained in that leaseholder deed of certificate as to ownership or occupation as of the 14th of February 2022. But if I'm acting for a buyer, Jenny, paragraph 13 of Schedule 8 provides us with a, a walk around and a means of having to uh, warn the client about the inaccuracy of information of on ownership and occupation. But I'll talk about that a little later if I can. So Ian, it seems to me from the discussion that we've been having that there's quite a lot involved in transactions where the, the BSA is involved. Definitely. There's quite a lot of extra work that conveyance solicitors have to do. E yeah. Even if it is just a, a question of acting as a mailbox with regard to additional documentation, and even if we're not giving advice or explanation relating to that documentation, there's work. Once we start just providing a general overview, which is in essence all we can do with regard to this documentation, no doubt about it. And you know, the government has said that if you're dealing with a leasehold transaction that involves the BSA, this is specialist work and that you're entitled to charge for it, which again is what I'm telling conveyances. The problem is market conditions are such that frequently they can't charge for it. But you're quite right, there's lots more work to do as a consequence of the act. And, and having specialists within the firm to undertake this work seems to be really quite yeah. important as well. Yeah. And looking at this from professional indemnity mm. perspective, because... The um, the underwriters are aware of um, of this issue and they're starting to ask questions about yeah. it. So being able to tell your PI underwriter that you have a centre of excellence within yes. your firm, you have specialists to do this work is yeah. going to be quite important. Yeah, there's a wealth of information out there to help. How helpful it is, as we've discussed in the past, is a different issue because the act is so complex. But certainly I think that's so important. I think also assessing the volume of work that you're doing leasehold work generally and work that's BSA related again is important just keeping an eye on the percentage of work that's BSA related because there's a lot of potential work out there and my guess is if you said right we're open for business with regard to BSA transactions you could be swamped and I guess you as an insurer wouldn't be happy if I've dealt with in the past very little leasehold residential leasehold work and I'm now doing loads of it and the majority of it is BSA related. Well yes that's right and you know the question is that we are seeing mm -hmm for professional indemnity purposes are asking um, firms to provide details of the amount of work yeah. that they've done involving BSA transactions. Mm. So, you know, it's really, I agree, important to, to continue to monitor that. Yeah. And, and also to be able to satisfy insurers that you have the knowledge and expertise within yes. the firm to do it. Yeah. And because it's evolving, um, I guess people are going to need to continue to attend seminars, webinars and, and keep up to date as changes occur. Yeah, you've got regulations coming in, you've got new 
guidance coming out all the time, you're getting clarification courtesy of first-tier tribunal decisions, and in addition to that, you're getting papers and papers and papers from barristers that are dealing with first-tier tribunal cases and having a, a dive into the Act and providing more and more information as to how the Act can be interpreted, and then, Jenny, how that relates to practice. Mm. So saying that your fee earners do a you know annual training session again is just not going to cut it, is it? I don't think so, no. no. I, I think you've got to be on this probably on a weekly basis. Ian, thank you for your time today. That's, uh, that's indeed been really helpful. And thank you to our listeners. We hope that you'll join us for the third episode in this series where we're going to be talking about lenders and the Building Safety Act. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fortune Favours the Brave from Howden. To hear more episodes and subscribe to our channel, search Fortune Favours the Brave on your favourite podcast app.